Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is black culture and the black community. Each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. You don't have to tell me we're living through some stressful times. Let's face it, being black in America comes with its own unique set of stressors that I hardly need to describe. It's a lot we must live with and internalize, and all of it has an effect. There's a public health term for what we're facing, a syndemic, the combination of multiple big-time stressors that hit all at once. Long-simmering frustration and anxiety over police brutality and civil injustices, a disproportionate impact from COVID-19, and a black unemployment rate peaking at around 7 million people. It begs the question, how traumatizing are these relentless events? It's hard for others outside of our community to understand the level to which we feel each other's pain, but we do. A 2018 study in the journal Lancet found that following police shootings, African-Americans suffer higher levels of psychological distress than white people even when they live in the same community. Black Americans are 49% more likely to be exposed to social and environmental factors that knowingly contribute to the development and exacerbation of mental illness. Black Americans are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems, but are 50% less likely to receive counseling or mental health treatment. Yet, of the estimated 41,000 psychiatrists in this country, only 2%, I repeat, 2% are black. All that said, there is also hope and recognition from some unlikely corners. Mental health and wellness are being talked about now more openly. From NBA players like DeMar DeRozan. Be something that, you know, I know a lot of people ashamed to talk about it. To recording artists like Big Sean and Kid Cudi, who have been quite open about their own mental health struggles and issues battling the stigma. Loneliness is, is a terrible, terrible thing, man. And, and, and if you don't know how to conquer it, it can eat you alive. This episode was created specifically in that spirit, in a time where there is unprecedented anxiety from a web of issues affecting the black community. We wanted to push forward a conversation around mental health and continue to destigmatize getting help. Because despite everything black people have been through, we still have joy. So we're going to explore some of the perspectives and solutions that can help black people preserve that joy. You're going to hear from Sidell Curry Lee and the Warriors Damon Lee about their own mental health journey as a couple. And we check in with the NBA Players Association's first ever mental health director, Dr. William Parham. Lastly, in honor of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we'll speak with Shannon Lee, the daughter of the late Bruce Lee, to share her story of his lasting legacy what allyship means, and how she's led the Bruce Lee Foundation today. I'm Mark J. Spears, senior NBA writer for ESPN's Undefeated and your host of Beyond 28. 
it's time to open up about mental health and how we can support each other. While Stephen Curry is changing the world on the court, his younger sister, Sidell Curry Lee, is looking to change the world off the court as a champion for mental health. In 2017, Curry Lee told the world about her struggles with anxiety and concussions and her personal mental health journey. A little bit vulnerable, but we'll get through it because it's very important for me that I talk to you all about it and letting people know that they're not alone with however they're feeling. She's far from dealing with this alone. Her partner, Warriors guard Damon Lee, has been right by her side. Together, the power couple has been vocal about the importance of being mentally healthy and has encouraged their fellow community to not shy away from seeking help if needed. I'm pleased to welcome them both to Beyond 28. So I'm going to take you to January 17, 2018. You had this revealing, beautiful, touching video that people could see on YouTube. And I think this is a good place we should start called My Mental Health Journey. Yeah, I think that was the very first time that I actually came out and spoke on a public platform about kind of how I got to that point in my mental health and talking about it openly. A couple of things that I touched on was I've had five concussions. So the ramifications and the side effects and symptoms that come with getting hit in the head five different times and having to deal with that. I think I spoke about a very toxic relationship that I was in, which took a toll on my mental health as far as really creating a lot of anxiety and bouts with depression as well. And also just like touching on the pressures of being in a family that I'm in, just that pressure of having to be something and make something out of myself. I mean, I was raised by really great people who instilled a lot of morals in me and a drive to be my own person. But when you have the rest of the world looking at not only you, but you know, the people, the, my siblings and everyone that came before me, it can be a lot. And so everyone's mental health is impacted in different ways. You could have a great life. You could have from the outside, you could have no worries. People can look at you and be like, oh my gosh, you are you know, you have a great home, you have a great family, like you're stable in certain areas of your life that they can see from the outside. But in the inside, only you know what you're going through and only you know how you handle certain situations. And that's something that's valid. And so in doing that video, it was kind of opening myself, like a really private part of myself up to the world, just so that I can show up for other people that may not have someone in their lives that tells them that. Because mental health can be a very lonely and scary place to be. Sometimes it's hard to describe how you're feeling when you don't even know how you're feeling yourself. You don't know how to verbalize that to yourself. So how can you do that to other people? I've met many of people who don't feel valid in their feelings because someone in their life doesn't tell them that's totally normal. Like I felt the same way. So Sidel, when did you first get help and in, in what fashion and what do you do since then to, to help? Yeah, so I first got help when I was in college. A teammate of mine ended up actually quitting our volleyball team because she was having some really bad mental health issues. And when she quit, I believe it's like right around the same time I was really going through it. I had gotten my third concussion at that point. I was still in and out of that really toxic relationship. And so seeing how she was vocal about her process. She said she was going to see one of the on-campus counselors. She kind of opened my eyes to that. So I went to a counselor on campus and just kind of talked to her about, you know, what I was going through. I talked to some of my doctors as well for like my concussion stuff. And then 
from then on, I just rely heavily on therapists. I've been in and out of therapy since 2015. And, and I say in and out because I don't really think it depends on the person. For me, I don't think therapy year round is something that I need. Eventually, the goal is to not need therapy at some point and to be able to work, like be able to handle some things on your own. But therapy is not always accessible to everyone, which is absolutely ridiculous. That's definitely something that I'm working to try to, to change because it's been such a help for me. But there's a bit of guilt that someone can feel for unloading a lot of stuff onto other people. So that's what my therapists are for. Damon, I wanted to see if you could explain to everyone, like, what does the Players Association and and NBA teams offer in terms of for the players if they want to see a therapist, psychologist or, or such? I believe every team has their own therapist that you can go to. Ours is Dr. Sam Turk. I mean, I've gone to him in the past as well. It's huge for you. And obviously there's so many no perceptions that come with being a professional athlete. You have everything, you know, at the tip of your hands, whatever you want, you get paid X amount of dollars. You get, you know, travel, this amazing lifestyle and people pay to come see you play and licensing and all that stuff. But it also comes at a cost. You know, one of my coaches said that, you know, we get paid, but we get paid for everything outside of what we do on the court. So two main advocates that have been speaking out, Kevin Love and uh, DeMar DeRozan, you know, put out those pieces in the last couple of years just about, you know, mental health and seeing how well received those have been, you know, and seeing how many more guys have come out and spoken out about it has been huge. I feel like a lot of that trauma starts at a younger age, you know, especially in the in the black community, whether, you know, it's, you know, growing up around drugs, violence, single parent homes, things like that. And then it's just a matter of how do we deal with it so that we don't, that we at least try not to pass that trauma down to the next generation. For both of you, do you think the way African-Americans look at therapists is changing or there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of building trust? What do you think of the current state of African-Americans and getting mental health help? I feel like it is changing in a sense, but it's just so like deep rooted, you know, just how we were raised where it's, oh, you good? Okay, well, sleep it off or pray on it or, you know, just like the reality is like we can pray and we can sleep it off as much as we want. But there's still going to be problems there down the line that we're going to have to overcome. It's just tough because the stigma of like men don't cry or they don't cry or like sometimes there's strength in crying and letting that pain out and letting that out. I think it's also within the black community, just the institutionalized trauma that has come with mental health and black people if, if you could take it back centuries years, 16, from, 19. Now, years <laughs> from now like right we're just we're fighting for racial justice at this point that's why that's why a lot of the times pray about it because other people don't care about you but jesus cares about you god cares about you so that's all that you really can look to at this point and so i think with you know, more Black people speaking up about, you know, when they're given the opportunity to be affected positively by the mental health community, then it will improve. Just from the past five years that I've been doing this, like, it's just amazing how we have just been more open to mental health. And so there's someone in your corner always. So don't be afraid to speak up, make yourself a priority. It's going to be all right. Next, I speak with Dr. William Parham, 
the inaugural director of the NBA Players Association's new mental health and wellness program. Parham, a counseling professor in the School of Education at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, has worked with professional college athletics throughout his career, including the NBA, NFL, USA Soccer, USA Tennis, and the USA Olympic Women's Volleyball Team. And for years, he has worked as the Los Angeles Lakers in-house psychologist, helping players unlock their inherent talent in the glare of the media spotlight. Parham is a strong advocate for mental health and mental resilience. Always dressed to the nines in a suit and tie, he cuts a slick figure that belies a truly gentle and generous soul inside. At a time when some high-profile athletes are speaking candidly about their childhood trauma, struggles with anxiety, on top of the Black Lives Matter movement and a global pandemic, the National Basketball Players Association's new mental health and wellness program has never been more needed. Listen as a good doctor openly shares about his professional journey, the programs he's leading, and how compassion and stillness can bring peace and harmony to your soul and your mind. Doctor, how are you doing, man? Actually, I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation, first of all. Uh, been a tough year. But I, I don't think I'm alone in this country, in this world, and saying that. And yeah, yeah. which probably um, makes your important job even more important as a director of mental health and wellness for the National Basketball Players Association. I want you to first tell us about your journey in getting to this position. I'm trained as a psychologist, been practicing for I don't know, about 35 years. I really enjoyed what I have done. A lot of my professional career has been working with elite athletes, both professional NFL, NBA, but also U.S. Olympic Committee. When this position came about, it really was a result of the Player Association listening to the voices of Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, Kelly Oubre, Trey Young, and many, many others. But I think it was the, the volume of people coming out, their marquee status, and the fact that they were also displaying their marquee uh, sensibilities as being human. And essentially said, I'm willing to hoop, but hey, I'm a person before a performer. The Players Association listened to that, had a search. I was blessed and fortunate to uh, make it through the top and was appointed in the end of May of 2018. What would you tell an, an, an NBA player, particularly even an African-American NBA player who's like, you know, Doc, I... I I don't trust this, man. They tell me that all the time. And if you were to tell me that, I'd listen to you. Say, I use four words. Mark, say more about that. Well, Doc, I had this experience before and that experience before. And I said this and I felt betrayed. Once again, I'd say, say more about that. Well, gosh, now I'm thinking about it. It happened way before then. And here, boom, 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 boom. So if I were to say, say more about that a third time, you would begin to see that what you are really doing is engaging in self-protective behavior. You'd begin to see that you are not avoiding therapy because you think it won't work. You're avoiding getting support because you really feel that it will work. And it really puts you square into needing to examine the anchors, the demons, if you will, that are holding you back. I would honor their desire to self-protect but invite them to say that what's on the other side of that can be something brighter. So do you think the stigma in the black community about using a psychologist is phasing away or, or is it still no, a real problem? No, not at all. It's a real problem. Because in order to really also understand stigma, I think you have to understand two things. One, the history of the medical and psychiatric enterprises and professions 
relative to black America has been horrendous and hate. In fact, in early days in slave trade, for example, surgeons, medical people, would, for example, engage in surgery without anesthesia because there was a belief that African-Americans could withstand pain. Their pain threshold was higher than most folks. So they would do those sorts of things. So the abuse of one's body, the indiscriminate diagnosis, the uh, disparity in terms of health care and the quality of it, I mean, all of that, there's a legacy and a continued contemporary practice of that. So some of the caution is well-founded and it's healthy suspicion. Stigma, while it's an emotional experience, it is also a marketed term. And to really understand that, you really have to understand what I consider the menage a trois relationship between pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and the roots of psychiatry. If you understand the intermingling of those three, you really begin to consider the medicalization of sickness, the marketing of illness, the marketing of pathology and stigma. So there are those sort of other forces, systemic and otherwise, that are really pushing people to stay not well, to feel as if there's something wrong. Why? Because they're making lots of money. You know, we, we, we talk about raising mental health awareness, but not quite as much as about the actionable steps, you know. When, when should we start thinking about action versus simply raising awareness? Well, I think we should always think about action. And again, I think part of the action is doing day-to-day uh, habits, understanding how to navigate daily hassles, uh, understanding the value of self-reflection, understanding the embrace and journeys of others around you in your immediate circle, your friends, family, children, and really understanding that every behavior is directed for some reason. And really taking the time to learn and educate yourself about what can I do to solve this life issue? Uh, How can I participate in bringing others in to help solve this issue? So being very active, in fact, this interview that we're having here, my guess is providing me some benefit because I'm really uh, interacting with you. My guess is even as you are listening and hoping to provide information to the audience, you might also be having some benefit from this. And so bringing to light that whatever we do is part of mental health and wellness. I really uh, often tell people when I see that they are entangled and, and snarled in a lot of other people's issues, I frequently recommend that as soon as they feel able to cancel their subscriptions to other people's issues. It's not easy to do. No. But it can't Doc, I've had to, I've had to cancel, sadly, some friends. <laughs> yeah. Because it just, you know, wasn't wasn't healthy to be connected to them. Absolutely. And, I, and hey, look, if I see them on the street, I'll give them a hug, wish them the best, all that. But some things aren't aren't healthy for you. You've also in disconnecting, you've provided a connection for them to discover that they can do some things independent of Mark Spears. And that also frees up some space once they get on their own journey and you're on yours. When you do meet, you can really have a a different level of freedom to appreciate each other. People can't drive you crazy unless you give them the keys. 
Doctor, in some of your uh, writing materials, one phrase that has stuck out to me that, that sounds deep and beautiful is invisible tattoos. Um, yes. can, you, can you break down what that means, how it's defined? Yes, I can. If you are a person with a tattoo, and if I were to ask you, Mark, how painful it was, you say, hey, doctor, this kicked my butt. It, it really was. It looks beautiful, but it hurt being on. The other thing I would know is that you cannot wash that tattoo off. Well, what we know in study of childhood trauma, there is a spectrum of emotions, not one emotion, a spectrum. And each one of those emotions is akin to the inkwell into which an artist, a tattoo artist, dips his uh, pen to draw ink, to etch that tattoo, on that marking on your body. Well, in like manner, those emotions that we have in response to childhood trauma represent the collective ink that indelibly etch images of a painful experience that lead to a painful past. And we have been incentivized, both men and women, and when you had dimensions of gender, culture, race, ethnicity, celebrity, we essentially are incentivized to not ever talk about that kind of stuff. But there are many people carrying around what I have argued as invisible tattoos. There was a classic study that came out with the Center for Disease Control at Kaiser Permanente Hospital. If you now, Mark Spears, went into your phone directory, your mobile phone, closed your eyes and randomly selected 100 people from your directory, the data clearly suggests that 65 out of 100 people have had from one to four adverse childhood experiences in their life, the earliest of which may have been experienced before the age of 10. So people are carrying around stuff. And I've gone on record saying, you know, everybody has baggage. And if that's true, which is code for it is, there's only two questions ever on the proverbial table of conversation. How many pieces of luggage do you have? And what's packed inside each bag? Everybody has it. Over this past year, you have George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. I Sadly, I could go on and on and on. Yeah. And then you have a pandemic. How trying do you think mentally it has been for the NBA player over the last 365 days? And do you think that today's NBA player is using what you guys are offering them to help? Well, there's two or three questions embedded in what appeared to be one, but the pandemic in itself is a human experience that really has stretched everybody to their emotional bandwidths. It really has put everybody on a pandemic pause. In fact, I remember uh, one of my elders taught us when we were kids, if you really want to put a smile on God's face, tell him what you have planned. So I've been telling my colleagues, God must be laughing so hard, his sides are hurting. But it really has forced people when they can't go to work, they can't go to movies, they can't go to dinners, they can't do X, Y, and Z. Essentially, they have no other visible means of distraction. They are left to really sort of examine themselves. And so that safer at home is good from a public health, but not necessarily from a mental health standpoint of view. So people have been put to the bandwidth. And how do we know this? Because we've seen increased calls to suicide hotlines. We've seen increased domestic violence. We've seen increased child abuse. We've seen now this Asian hate as a result of this and 150% increase in Asian hate. That's just the pandemic part of it. 
the pandemic of racism has superseded this. Yes, it is a pandemic. Racism is America's original sin. And unlike the medical pandemic where we have had an all-hands-on-deck approach to getting these vaccines, there's not been an all-hands approach to getting this racism cleared out. So I think the players, as a result of both, our guys in the league have really come up and stepped to the plate and made things happen. That has brought a healing energy. So to answer your question at the end, I think they are taking advantage of mental health and wellness. I think that the pandemic and the social justice movements have agitated them and others to a point that really began to ask, what can I do? I'm feeling unsettled and I don't like that. I need to really start finding some solutions to this and bringing some control to that which feels so uncontrollable. Well, Dr. Parham, man, I, I want to thank you very, very much for all your wisdom, your, your, your depth, your knowledge. And my last question to you, this podcast, Beyond 28, it's, it's built on a mission of celebrating black history, people, and culture all year long, 365 days a year. What does that Amen. mean to you? Well, I, I think it's long overdue. It is uh, the first that I'm aware of that this is happening in very concrete ways. I, I think the, the podcast Beyond 28 signifies that it needs to be gone beyond February. But the secondary version is 365, mental health and wellness and, and black history specifically is a lived experience that not only impacts and emboldens and illuminates African-American communities, but we are all connected together. And so when one community is illuminated, it in fact brings light to others. So I'm all for the concept, and I wish you nothing but the best continued success for really bringing these messages and opportunities for your listeners to go, hmm, I never thought about it like that. That's a, an investment in their mental health and wellness the dividends of which you and they will see down the road. You can take that to the bank. NBA Mind Health is guided by the central idea of humanizing mental health. The mission of Mind Health is to engage, educate, and serve the NBA community and to position mental health as an essential element of wellness and excellence, both on and off the court. In service of that mission, NBA Mind Health has launched a website to share information, resources, and tools to feature the voices and stories of current and former NBA, WNBA, G League, and 2K League players, coaches, staff, and others in the NBA family. Take time now to check it out by visiting nba.com backslash mindhealth. Next on Beyond 28, in honor of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we highlight Bruce Lee's legacy as a civil rights ally and figure of cultural might within the black community. In addition, we speak with Shannon Lee, the legendary star's daughter who today runs the Bruce Lee Foundation, a nonprofit aimed at sharing Lee's life and vision to younger generations. I just 
want to keep putting out those unifying messages and those images. And we're working on a program right now under what we call our One Family Initiative to create more unifying imagery out in the world. Just so, you know, much in the way that my father did that in his films, we're working on an initiative to create murals in different places that have themes of unity, that have themes of togetherness, that normalizes that imagery in the culture. I talk about my father often as a person who like bridged communities, he bridged cultures, he bridged ideas together. Like he was this person who who was very unifying in that way. And I just want to continue to be able to do that work on his behalf. Those are the words of Shannon Lee. Bruce Lee's youngest child and only daughter. She took over the foundation started by her mother, Linda Lee Caldwell, and serves as its chairwoman in addition to running the Bruce Lee family companies. One thing that I hear people have said to me over the many, many years is that my dad made it cool to be Asian. <laughs> and, um, and that he was this strong representation of an Asian man that had not really been experienced in culture prior, prior to that moment. You know, his love for his own culture, his desire to share himself so broadly and so deeply with the world made it a badge of honor for myself and for, and for many, many people. The foundation has been especially vocal of late, fighting the rise in anti-Asian hate that has grown out of ugly rhetoric tying China and the Asian people to the coronavirus and playing upon 18th century tropes, the Chinese people being the sick man of Asia and other ugly stereotypes. Throughout the year, there had been a marked rise in racist attacks against Asian Americans, which ultimately led to a shooting and killing of eight people in Atlanta. Deadly shootings, killing at least eight people. And police across the country are on alert this morning as well, fearing the attacks may have targeted the Asian community. In the wake of the shooting, the foundation sought to raise more awareness and teamed up with Steph Curry to release a Bruce Lee-inspired sneaker. The proceeds from the sales will go right to the families of the victims. He has a lot of quotes and narratives and themes that he spoke on consistently that still ring true today. And I know his foundation is doing a lot to live that out and to impact people's lives and continue to spark change. So, you know, the shoes are a very small way to hopefully raise money for that work and that cause and, you know, raise awareness. The shoes featured a famously quote that read, under the heavens, there is but one family. You know, because that quote goes on to say, you know, under the heavens, under the sky, we're all one family. It just so happens that we look different, you know? <laughs> and I think that, I think that this is such an important idea to cultivate in the world right now. And, and by the way, it's also true. Since his passing in 1973, the martial arts star has become endlessly canonized and mythologized to a point where he sees to be simply a person and instead has become a kind of Asian-American superhero. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Almost like a character straight out of comic books, he's known for his trademark yellow and black outfit, and his distinctive cries during fight scenes while twirling his trademark nunchucks with deadly precision. There is not a person alive, Asian American or African American, or frankly any American, who was born during Lee's cultural heyday, who has not tried to emulate Bruce Lee in the mirror or on the playground. Yet he was also so much more, a fashion icon, a philosopher. I said, empty your mind 
be formless, shapeless, like water. And a revolutionary fight choreographer. He was also, for many black Americans, an adopted cultural hero in that he refused to be either marginalized or silenced in a system that sought to do both to men of color. My father just did not believe in things like racism or prejudices of those types at all. To him, he saw being a Chinese man as an asset, as something that made him interesting, that made him unique. And I think he felt that way about everyone. Lee preached constantly that in martial arts, distinctions of race and nation must be discarded. So Chinese, or do you ever think of yourself as North American? You, you, you know what I want to think of myself? As a human being. Under the sky, under the heaven, man, there is but one family. It just so happened, man, that people are different. Lee also took his fight against racism before the eyes of his audience. His first two major films centered around beating back against oppressive systems. Lee's 1971 movie, The Big Boss, featured him fighting on the side of laborers against a crime boss, while Fist of Fury, which came out a year later, showed the martial artists fighting against Japanese colonialism and the discrimination of Chinese people. There's only one thing you need to pretend you're a dog, and I'll take you in. In Enter the Dragon, Lee, who produced and starred in the film, showed the symbiotic relationship between colonialism and racism. The enemy has only images and illusions behind which he hides his true motives. Destroy the image, and you will break the enemy. It included direct reference to police harassment of black people and also the black martial arts movement. This was in the era of black power and its emphasis on self-determination and resistance in the face of white supremacist society, with many black activists and organizers recognizing in Lee a kindred spirit. A lot of people may not know that he was a quarter Caucasian and as such encountered problems for that in Hong Kong growing up. He was kicked out of his training because at the time it was believed that you shouldn't teach Chinese Kung Fu to non-Chinese. And because he had a quarter Caucasian blood, they considered him not fully Chinese. Then he comes to Hollywood and he saw the state of representation in Hollywood and the portrayal of Asians in film and television as either just horribly stereotypical and shallow, or even that Caucasian people played Asian people. Lee's commitment to self-defense, especially for those who were targets of a racist and brutal society, was much more than just performance. Bruce Lee practiced what he preached. One of his first students as a martial arts instructor was Jesse Glover, who would go on to be Lee's first assistant instructor in the United States. Glover, a black man, had been a victim of police brutality. My father also got to learn about Jesse's experience, you know, and about what it is to be, um, you know, a, a person of color in America. And I think that that that, that was, it was a very um, important relationship for the two of them in terms of learning from one another, albeit in different ways. Among Lee's most publicized friendships was with Hall of Fame NBA center Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who also used his voice to become a civil rights advocate. Abdul-Jabbar, who boycotted the 1968 Summer Olympics in protest of injustices toward black Americans, among other forms of activism, would discuss social issues with Lee. If you live in a racist society, you naturally have to react to racism if you are if you're attacked, you know, you naturally give a reaction, you see. Uh, if you're going to do something about it, you do something about it on the basis 
of your race. We don't uh, catch hell because we're uh, Christians. We catch hell because we're black. Abdul-Jabbar were going to appear in only one movie with Lee, Game of Death, which featured an epic battle between Abdul-Jabbar and his martial arts teacher and friend. Little fellow, you must have given up the hope of living. Uh-uh. On the contrary, I do not let the word death bother me. There were not multiple Bruce Lees. There was not public Bruce Lee and private Bruce Lee or teacher Bruce Lee and actor Bruce Lee and family man Bruce Lee. There was just one unified total Bruce Lee. That wraps up this episode. I'm your host, Mark Spears. I'd like to thank our guests, Idell Curry Lee and Damon Lee, Dr. William Parham and Shannon Lee. Beyond 28 is brought to you by the Golden State Warriors and Chase. Tune in next month as we discuss Pride Month in the Black community in Juneteenth, and we'll continue to lift up Black voices, their stories, and the culture. It's still Black History Month. Rolling on beach, more certified Chico, living like this because I dreamed about it. Never been weak, no hometown hero, rapping my team, I can't be without him. Sturdy like Draymond, won't fold, bond like Curry, I'm beyond, straight to the top, let's get going. I ain't gonna stop to it, right, what's wrong? do y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast